Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for a beautiful day, Lord's Day, where we can gather in your name, where we can worship and fellowship and be reminded of who we are and why we're here. We thank you that you've loved us. We thank you for the church today as we especially celebrate Pentecost and uh, remember that glorious moment when the gospel bursts forth to spread to the whole world. And here we are uh, as a result, not only the recipients of that blessing, but the uh, those who continue the legacy of spreading the good news. So bless us today as we think about your word. Help us to uh, uh, be serious and engaged and thoughtful about uh, what we believe and why we believe it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So today I want to talk about, um, get into some of the details of our distinctives, and specifically I want to talk about how we go about interpreting the Bible. Christians have had different ideas about that, and as we've already laid the groundwork uh, in terms of the broad definition of what a Christian is in light of the uh, ecumenical creeds, as well as other other things we could use to measure that. And then we've looked at, uh, we've kind of narrowed that down and talked about uh, confessions of faith where particular groups of Christians express what they believe about different things. It's uh, important to understand that what we believe about the Bible, if the, if the Bible is, as it is, the Word of God and it is authoritative, then we also have to have thoughts about it. We have to understand how it is to be handled, how it is to be interpreted. The world is full of facts, but not all, and the facts do speak. The Bible speaks, but all facts have to be interpreted, how we receive them, how we understand them. Have you ever misunderstood something? And then perhaps you've got a teacher or parent or someone explain something, and sometimes if you're like me, it had to be explained multiple times. And then there's a, perhaps a moment where you go, ah, I see it now. And then you, you grow and you mature. Well, all of this is true for all Christians, hopefully, that we grow and mature and we rethink things and we learn things and we gain new perspectives on how, uh, how to think about the Word of God. The Word doesn't change. The Word is constant. The Word is the truth. And again, it is unchangeable just like God is unchangeable. Uh, And so uh, how we approach it is is important because, as uh, Richard Weaver wrote in his book titled Ideas Have Consequences, every idea has consequences, bears fruit. This is what we might consider the practical side of philosophy. So it matters what we think. It matters what we believe. Because every idea, every belief produces a certain kind of fruit. Uh, if I, if I uh, start with a good foundation, it's going to lead to good conclusions. If I start with a bad foundation, it's going to lead to bad conclusions. If I get the first button in the wrong buttonhole and I'm not paying attention, I uh, discover that halfway down buttoning my, buttoning my shirt, I've got to start over. And so these things are related. Every culture produces ideas and beliefs. Your family culture does, your church culture does, our national culture does. 
And a church is a culture. And so I like to turn this statement around, ideas have consequences, and, and, and say that consequences have ideas. Uh, when we see a culture and its fruit, which is what we see first, right? We just like, what, we look at a culture and we see how people dress and what their music is like and, and how they act. That's what we see first. Then we, then we're kind of driven to ask, what ideas produce this? What's behind this? What is the thought? What is the thinking here? And many times the ideas have not really been thought about in a systematic way. Or we don't evaluate the culture at all. We just, oh, it just is. We just don't give it any thought. Or else the ideas seem to be hidden. They might seem to be random or unconnected. This is true for us individually. It's true for us corporately uh, because we all do philosophy and we all do theology. That is, we all have ideas, but we don't all do philosophy and theology well. Our philosophies and theologies, again, are often haphazard and inconsistent. And as a result, the fruit of our philosophy and theology is also haphazard and inconsistent. As I don't remember who said it, but I'm quoting somebody, uh, that we pick up our, our philosophy the way, uh, I think it was Francis Schaeffer, uh, the way we get the measles. I guess now we'd say the way we get COVID. We just, somehow we got it. Uh, we got it from all kinds of situations. So as a result, the fruit of our philosophy and theology is also haphazard and inconsistent. So theology, a simple definition of theology, is what God thinks about a matter. And God thinks about all matters. To the degree my thoughts match his thoughts, we have truth. To the degree my thoughts don't match his thoughts, I'm wrong. So theology is what God thinks about a matter. Philosophy is what we think about a matter. And what we want is for our philosophy to match our theology, or to match God's theology, his thoughts. So the goal, again, is to have our thoughts conform to God's thoughts. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So that's a, that's a really good starting place for us is to recognize that. I'm not God. I don't start neutral. I don't start able to all by myself look at the world and interpret it correctly and come up with the right answer. The Bible tells me, no, you're starting in a deficit. You're, you're sinful, and that has affected the way you view yourself. It's affected the way you view the world. And so you need a reboot. You need to start over. You need to bring all of your thoughts captive to Christ and start rethinking the world, start rethinking about yourself and so forth. So since we are inevitably philosophers and theologians, we, we must strive then to be consistently Christian in both our theology and our philosophy. In our context, we need a distinctive theology of church and family. And remember, we already have a philosophy of church and family. The question is whether that philosophy is in accord with God's thoughts on the matter, the matters. 
So some years ago, I wrote an article called Inescapable Systems, and that's really where I want to focus uh, our discussion this morning, our lesson. So interpreting the Bible systematically, that is, according to some underlying principle or, uh, or procedure, is inescapable. In other words, if you're going to read the Bible, you have, there has to be some method, some system by which you do that. And again, you may have thought about it, you might not have thought about it, but it's still there. It's, it's unavoidable. Um, to deny the systematic nature of God's revelation would be to reject the unity of God himself. In other words, we'd say the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is all the revelation of God revealing himself on any number of subjects, including about himself and about us and about sin and about redemption and about family and economics and any other subject you want, the Bible is, the whole Bible is God's revealing of truth to, to us, special revelation. And so we expect God's word from start to finish to be internally consistent and coherent. Any acceptable system of biblical interpretation must therefore take account of the unity of God and his revelation. So there's, God is perfect. And his law is perfect. His word is perfect because it, it, is a, it is a reflection of his character, of who he is. And in fact, that's the only things we have in this world that are perfect. So our system of interpretation, again, which is unavoidable to have one, provides the measuring stick whereby we are going to interpret the meaning of Scripture. Again, bear with me because I'm going to bring this together and you'll see what I'm talking about. So two, two people, uh, if we had two sticks and they were of different lengths, but we both called them yardsticks and we were measuring the square footage of this room, how long would it take us to agree on the size of the room if we had two different length sticks we called yardsticks? We could, we'd be arguing nonstop. We would never arrive at the same answer because we started with a different standard. And so neither will doctrinal disputes be resolved until the basic interpretive questions are resolved. That's why we're starting here before we get into some other details and other lessons. Which fundamental interpretive principles or system provide the standard by which an accurate and consistent understanding can be obtained. Now, if we both had the same length stick, let's say 36 inches each, we called a yardstick, and we started to measure the square footage of the room, and it might be a little more complicated in here because we have these little things that jut out, and, and so might we come up with a different answer? Yes, but the problem wouldn't be the yardsticks. The problem would be us. We, uh, as my math teacher frequently told me, uh, you made, uh, uh, what's the, what was the term? You made uh, careless errors, careless mistakes. So perhaps if we got, we, oh, let's do it again. Let's do it again. Oh, you're, you forgot to allow for this or that. Okay, little by little, but eventually we would come to the, to the right answer together. Um, so when, the found, when this foundational issue is, it's, and it is often bypassed, we have disastrous results. We can't even really have conversations that are all that meaningful. We just we think we're playing tic-tac-toe. 
I've got X's and you've got O's. Uh, but here's what we need to recognize. When it comes to the Bible, uh, there's not your verses and my verses. There, all the verses are our verses. We have to deal with all of what the Scripture says, and that's not always easy. Um, while there are several principles necessary for the proper understanding of the teachings of the Bible, one of the most basic issues concerns the relationship between the Old and the New Testaments. Um, while there are several, uh, so the question is, and you'll hear, you've heard this term perhaps, should we be New Testament Christians? Or should we be whole Bible Christians? That, that kind of is a good way perhaps to summarize the different approaches that evangelical Christians have. Is there a basic continuity between the Old and New Testament or a basic discontinuity? Now, I can't emphasize how critical the answer to that question is to almost everything else we're going to look at uh, and every other doctrine of the Bible. The two basic interpretive systems find their fullest expression in two systems of theology, one called covenant theology and the other dispensational theology. Are there other systems? There are, but for our discussion, I'm going to limit it to these two because they're the most um, popular, most well-known uh, in, in uh, evangelical circles. And like everything else we've said, if we looked at each of those, we'll find differences uh, here and there even within those systems. But these two, so covenant theology teaches, and that's the position we would take, a basic unity or continuity between the Old and New Testaments with the new flowing out of and being built on top of the old. There's an organic connection. Many years ago, some of us, back in the days before this church started, attended a, uh, a series of lectures by Pastor Steve Schlissel, and he had a very memorable moment in his talk where he was talking about this, and he pulled out a Bible, and I'm not going to do it with my Bible, um, I meant to get one and actually do this because it was so memorable. He opened it up. You probably, in, in the middle of your Bible, between the Old and New Testament, have a page that distinguishes, you know, it's a title page or whatever, and he just tore that page out. And, he, and his point was, this page is not inspired. That, that was, the publisher put that in as kind of a bookmark, but that's not, God didn't put that there. The Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is the authoritative, infallible, inerrant Word of God. Genesis to Revelation. Now, we're going to see that as we go along, the New Testament has things to say about the Old Testament. The Old Testament uh, has a lot to say about the New Testament, but they are inseparable. Now, dispensational theology calls for a basic discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments, essentially an annulment or a replacement of the old uh, due to the inauguration of the new. So it's, it's now, uh, it doesn't apply anymore. So you'll hear statements like, unless it's repeated in the New Testament, it's not authoritative for Christians. So we're going to begin to see why answering this question is so important. Because there's... there's all, 
First of all, the Old Testament's a lot bigger than the New Testament. There's a lot of information there. And if we say, we're going to basically set that on the shelf, nice historical reference, but it has no authority, nothing in it is really binding unless it's repeated in the New Testament. Now, I would like to suggest there's nothing in the New Testament that says that. Now, how do we test our interpretive principle? By the way, there's a theological term for this called hermeneutics, but we're not going to worry about that. Um, How do we test? Do we just get to pick one and say, well, I like this one better? Uh, How do we test it? And I want to suggest that there is a way to test this. So, for the sake of argument, and you know what I mean by that, um, just say, okay, let's assume for the moment, that only the New Testament data, uh, let's consider the New Testament data concerning interpretive method. What does the New Testament say? What does the New Testament do in regard to this question? How does the New Testament make use of the Old Testament? Does the New Testament presume that the Old Testament is authoritative over New Testament believers? Are there direct commands and or examples? And so we're going to be, I'm just going to be reading quite a bit of scripture here to make the argument that the New Testament itself teaches us that the Old Testament is still completely authoritative over the life of New Testament believers. So hang on. I'm just going to, again, be looking at quite a few verses here um, just to illustrate this. So the New Testament commands for the authoritative use of the Old Testament. Matthew 4.4, Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He was talking about the Old Testament. The New Testament wasn't here yet, but that this verse will apply, of course, to the New Testament once it's established as the Word of God, but every Word of God is a man is to live by. Matthew 5, 17-19, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets. That's the Old Testament. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, Not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. And then sometimes people say, oh, well, he fulfilled it. Well, that's fine. Whatever You can make fulfilled mean whatever you want it to mean as long as it means that the Old Testament didn't pass away. Because he just said, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets. And he says it twice. Second sentence, I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments, which commandments is he referring to? The Old Testament. And teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does not teach them, he shall be, or whoever does teach, teach them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Luke 16, 29 through 31. Abraham said to him, Remember, in the, this is uh, in the bosom of Abraham. This is the story of Lazarus, and he is in the bosom of Abraham. 
And uh, the rich man is on the other side calling for Abraham to send someone to warn his brothers who are still on earth not to come to where he is. And Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rises from the dead. Acts 17.11, Paul is uh, at Berea, and it says, These were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they searched the Scriptures daily. Well, they received the Word with all readiness of heart, and they searched the Word uh, Scriptures daily to see if what Paul was saying was true. Which Scriptures were the Bereans searching daily? The Old Testament. Romans 15.4, for whatever things were written before, Old Testament, were written for our learning, New Testament, that we might, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, have hope. 1 Corinthians 10.11, now all these things happened to them, Old Testament, as examples, and they were written for our admonition, New Testament, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. 2 Timothy 3, 15-17, speaking of Timothy, from childhood, from the time you were a nursing baby, you have known the Holy Scriptures. Which Scriptures would those be? Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So the Old Testament was sufficient to do that. All Scripture... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, or God-breathed, and is profitable for... Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete or mature, thoroughly equipped in every good work. Now that is, again, not, is, is referring to the Old Testament at this point because there isn't a New Testament yet. But these are New Testament believers. New Testament examples of the authoritative use of the Old Testament. Matthew 4, Jesus quoted authoritatively from the Old Testament to resist Satan's temptation. Jesus often supported his teaching with the words, it is written. What is he referring to? Old Testament. 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, Let the elders, New Testament, who rule well, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. For the Scripture says, and it quotes the Old Testament here, Deuteronomy 25, 4, uh, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. The labor is worthy of its wages. So Paul is saying, I'm, I'm making an application here as to what you are to do in regard to your New Testament elders or pastors, and, and I'm going to cite as the authority for that the Old Testament. And so he quotes Deuteronomy 25.4. Hebrews 10.30-31, For we know him, that is Jesus, who said, uh, excuse me, yeah, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Again, quoting Deuteronomy 32 uh, uh, in this case. So Hebrews 13, 5 through 7. 
Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their faith. And in this case, that passage is quoting from Genesis 28:15, Deuteronomy 31, 6 through 8, and Joshua 1 through 5. The New Testament does not set aside the Old Testament. It relies on and emphasizes the continued validity of the Old Testament for God's people under the New Covenant. And so I believe this settles the hermeneutical or interpretive question as the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster says, the Word of God, which is contained in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy Him. And so by dividing the Bible and the covenants of God, I would say dividing the Bible and the covenants of God is unwarranted. We would need warrant in the Bible for this. So the Old Testament needs the New Testament, and the New Testament needs the Old Testament for either to be properly interpreted. You may, I've, you've heard this phrase, I've used it many times, it's just an easy way to remember this. The new in the old is contained, and the old by the new is explained. So, and I'm going to say more about this as we go. It's also what we're covering in the book of Acts uh, as well. So within the Old Testament, Jesus says that the Old Testament is talking about him. So that's what we mean when we say that the new in the old is contained. And the old by the new is explained. So we get further revelation of God in the New Testament that helps us go, oh, that's what he was talking about. Oh, now I see. And that's, again, what Jesus does with his disciples. He shows them how the Old Testament was talking about him. So, again, we are whole Bible Christians, not New Testament Christians. We are, we're actually, so we're both. So when we say whole Bible, that includes the Old and New Testament. So we must reject any demand to begin our study of any doctrine with the New Testament alone. First, the New Testament can only, can be, interpre- only be interpreted properly in the context of the Old Testament. If you just read the New Testament and, and had no reference to the Old, a great deal of it would not make any sense at all. Both the Old Testament itself and the culture it produced provide the foundation and the understanding uh, for how those who first received the New Testament would have understood its teaching. That was, that was their culture. That was their context. And so God has provided an inspired and written record of both the history of redemption and the historical experiences of his people. We, therefore, may not rush to the New Testament uh, concordance in hand and presume that we have all the tools and information necessary to reach an accurate conclusion about any doctrine. So that's one point. Second, the doctrines of the New Testament have their roots in the Old Testament. They didn't just spring up out of nowhere. When we read in Galatians 3.29 that we are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise, 
we're going to have to go back to the book of Genesis to find out what he's talking about. So here's a New Testament application saying, you're children of Abraham and heirs of the promise, and that was the promise God made to Abraham. It's in a new promise. It's the ancient promise. I'll be your God and a God to your children and your children's children. That's the promise that God made to Abraham. It's also the same promise that's quoted on the day of Pentecost in, in Peter's sermon when the Jews who were gathered there said, what, what should we do? He said, the promise, referring to the Abrahamic promise, is to you and your children and to those far off, the Gentiles, as many as the Lord our God shall call. Again, reference back here. When we read in Philippians 3.3 that, quote, we are the true circumcision, we have to go to the Old Testament to discover what circumcision was and what function it performed. What did it mean? And we'll cover that in another lesson. When we read in Romans 15.8 that Christ came to confirm the promises given to the fathers, or in Ephesians 2.12 that the Gentiles were, quote, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, it is only in the Old Testament where we will discover the foundations of those New Testament teachings. And so it would be useless uh, to try and answer the following questions without turning to the Old Testament. How did the Jews, for example, understand the baptism of John, John the Baptist? How did they understand it? What are the various various baptisms that are mentioned in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10? By the way, the answer to that is you've got to go back and notice that all the items in the temple were baptized. And they weren't immersed. Let me just say that for now. Why was circumcision of the heart in Colossians 2, 11 through 12 represented by baptism? Again, we're going to come back to these questions in another lesson. I'm just asking the questions. I'm saying you can't answer that question if, you, if the Old Testament is not authoritative. What represented circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament? If baptism represents circumcision of the heart in the New Testament, what represented circumcision of the heart in the Old Testament? I'll leave you hanging. Likewise, the New Testament similarly drives us immediately to the Old Testament when we try to understand the doctrines of creation, sin, redemption, the sacrifice of Christ, the atonement, the priesthood, the eldership, church discipline, the Lord's Supper, marriage, divorce, households, covenants, judgment, heaven, and much more. You cannot have a full-orbed understanding of those doctrinal subjects without the authority of the Old Testament. Now, here's what Jesus said about himself, and again, we'll allude to some of this in the sermon today. In Luke 24, and this is, uh, again, on the road to Emmaus after Jesus has been resurrected from the dead and he's walking with his disciples. And he says this, Then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all all that the prophets have spoken. That's the Old Testament. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets... 
Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And he says again in, in later in the same chapter, verses 44 and 45. Then Jesus said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. So in other words, Jesus had already been teaching them these things. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Again, all of this has powerful implications about many doctrines, if not all of them. So, for example, God himself. Is there a God of the Old Testament and a God of the New Testament? Have you ever heard anyone speak that way? As though the God of the Old Testament, of course, was this harsh, unbending, stern God. And then Jesus came along, and he, he's the lighter version. Sweet Jesus. But that's a misrepresentation in both cases. Are there two different people of God, the Israel, uh, Israel and the church? Is that what the Bible teaches? Old Testament history is the history of our people. That's why we get to Hebrews and we have a list of all those who, were faith, who are commended for their faith. It's a whole list of Old Testament people. These are our people. These are our, this is our heritage. Jesus said, John 8, your father Abraham rejoiced. I'm going to make an argument here that Abraham was a Christian. Moses was a Christian. David was a Christian. Why? Because they believed in Jesus. Here's what Jesus said. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Abraham believed in Jesus. He trusted God's promise that his seed, Galatians tells us, that that reference to the seed of Abraham is primarily about Christ. The New Testament describes us as children of Abraham. Now, in Acts 3, 19 through 26, Peter's sermon as he's preaching uh, on the day of Pentecost, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before. He's speaking to a whole audience of Jews. Jesus was preached to you before. Whom heaven must receive until the time of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, quote, the Lord your God will raise up a prophet like me from your brother. So Moses, so here's why I'm going to argue Moses believed in Jesus too, because here's what Moses said, and it's being cited here in Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. Moses said, 
The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. That's a reference to Christ. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets, this is still Peter on the day of Pentecost, all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many as have spoken, also foretold these days. New Testament. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God, having raised up this servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. David, too, was a Christian. He believed in Jesus. And thus, in Mark 12, Jesus speaks of David, of David's son, yet David's Lord. So Jesus is, an, is the descendant of David, and yet David himself calls his own son, Jesus, Lord. So continuity in the sacraments is another important thing, and the place of our children in relationship to that covenant. Again, I'm just mentioning these, and we'll wrap up here. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are connected to circumcision and the Old Testament feast. They didn't just appear out of nowhere. The Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic covenants are all foundational to the New Covenant. So, so, so we could say, well, the New Covenant made all those go away, or we can say, no, all of those were always pointing this direction. Think of a, a, the bud of a flower. We go to Genesis uh, 3.15, where God promises that the seed of the serpent uh, will have his head crushed and that he will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, the first promise of the gospel. From there, that little bud starts to grow through the Old Testament with, with a covenant with Adam and Noah and Moses and Abraham and David and um, uh, I got those backwards. Abraham, Moses, and David. Um, that flower is getting bigger. God's showing more and more and more what he's doing until Christ comes, and that's the full bloom. Greater glory, greater finality, greater scope. So the promises of the Old Testament are fulfilled in the New Testament including the future victory of Christ's kingdom. So it's going to have something to say about our eschatology. And you can't know that without reading things like Psalm 2 or Ezekiel or Daniel and all kinds of other places that reveal what's happening. In fact, it would be hard to think of any doctrine, any teaching of the Bible that could be fully and properly understood without the Old Testament as the authority and foundation for that. Yes?
All right, I'll give an illustration here. Did y'all hear the question? Some people will be critical of the Old Testament, saying that we're inconsistent when we say this because we don't follow all the dietary laws or certain other ceremonial things in the Old Testament. Well, the short answer is the New Testament has spoken to that. We get we we get to read all of the Word of God in order to understand any part of the Word of God. So, did Jesus change anything? Yes. Um. Remember, all the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. It's referred to as a shadow. I like to think of it as elementary school. And it's it's teaching us the basics about the law and about God's kingship and his kingdom. And, And so all kinds of things are going on to lead us to Christ. In fact, Galatians says that the law was a tutor to lead us to Christ. All the Old Testament sacrifices pointed to Christ. And that's why when we get to the book of Hebrews, it says these Old Testament ceremonial laws have become obsolete. Why? Because Jesus is here now. We don't need priests because we have Christ, who is the high priest. The, the principle of priesthood is still there. We still have to have a mediator. That hasn't changed. The, the equ- what's called the equity of the law, the heart of it hasn't changed. It's just that Jesus is the greatest priest. He sat down at the right hand of God. We don't need a a continual sacrifice anymore. We used to. Those things that were pointing to Christ, once he came, he became the high priest. He also was the perfect sacrifice. We don't need bulls and goats anymore because Jesus is the Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice. And we don't need a temple or tabernacle anymore. Why? Because Jesus is that temple. Remember he said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up again. And by the way, because you're in Christ, you too are priests, you too are sacrifices, and you too are the temples of the Holy Spirit, because you're in Christ. So what I'd say is the, Old, the New Testament has the authority, because it's the God, Word of God, to say circumstances have changed. We're going to apply these same principles in new ways, in different ways. But I don't get to just do that on my own. So if I... If I, if I, let's say my son is 10 or, or so, and I've given him his weekly responsibility is to take the trash out uh, three times a week. And now he's turned 12, and I say, and now I want you to mow the grass. So he starts mowing the grass weekly, but he stops taking the trash out. And I said, why did you stop taking the trash out? Well, you told me to mow the grass. Well, I didn't tell you to stop taking the trash out. You do that and this. Now, at some point, I may say, you got a little brother. Now, he can take the trash out, and you don't need to. You've graduated. I'm going to give you other things to do. I can do that because I'm the dad. He doesn't get to do that on his own. So we're always going to interpret the Bible in light of the whole Bible, not just a piece here and a piece there. That's that's a really dangerous way to interpret the Bible anyway. All right, yes. Yeah, so God was teaching his people, you're a separate people, you're a holy people. And so God's using the Jewish nation, as, the intent was for them to be evangelists to the world. To, and now at Pentecost, that's what happens, right? Because many of them lost sight of that. They thought, oh, well, we're just the, the special people, and those Gentiles are dirty dogs. And in, in the book of Acts, we see this. God's 
basically, again, correcting them and saying, just like that son who missed the point uh, and stopped taking the trash out, they many of them missed the point. And, they, and God had to teach them some pretty hard lessons there in Acts, including, and we'll refer to this today, Peter's Macedonian vision, where he says, you can eat these foods. Peter was a Jew. He, he wouldn't dare eat those foods. And what, what was God revealing? What's the next thing that happens? Cornelius shows up on his doorstep. And here, Peter not only learned the lesson, and he's going to have a lapse later, but um, he invites Cornelius into his home, something a Jew would have never done with a Gentile. And he goes back and he, he goes back to Jerusalem to the leadership and says, I've got to tell you what happened. Clearly, God, the gospel here is not just for the Jews, but it's for the Gentiles as well. So we have, again, New Testament warrant for interpreting and understanding circumstantial changes. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its uh, power and authority and how it uh, leads us in the way of truth. Bless us now as we prepare for worship. In Jesus' name, amen.